greetings tonight in the name of the Lord Jesus. The Lord has been good to us. He's blessed us with bountiful blessings as an Anabaptist church in recent generations. Uh, I think we take that for granted sometimes. Uh, how good God has been to us. Uh, we've not faced any persecution or very little. Uh, he's blessed us with a lot of material means. We can help people like we never have been able to. Uh, God has gifted us with many young men who are filling the role of leadership and, and developing their gifts. We just have so much to be thankful for when it comes to the body of Christ. And so we're glad to be with you again this evening. I appreciate a devotional reading, uh, an outstanding example of a man with conviction. So we'll be talking about biblical conviction tonight, the role of biblical conviction in the church. Now the word conviction is not found in the Bible. And so I, uh, I like to study words. And so I uh, looked up the definition of conviction, uh, two that I'll share with you, the state of being convinced. And the second definition is a fixed, strong belief. Convictions, I believe, need to be uh, Bible-based. Uh, if they're not Bible-based, it's, it's an opinion. And so the word opinion intrigued me. So I looked up the definition of opinion, and I, I, I came across uh, in, the, in the dictionary uh, what I thought was an interesting definition. An opinion is a conclusion held with confidence, but not substantiated by positive knowledge or proof. I thought that was interesting. All of us have opinions. Uh, some of my friends in Pennsylvania know that I have a very strong opinion that Fords are the only good vehicles to be on the road. And... Uh, However, I really don't have a good reason for feeling that way, but I probably would not change because if I would, I'd get to hear it. <laughs> so an opinion is quite different than a conviction. An opinion is generally based on observation. Uh, it can have to do with our cultural setting, the way we grew up, we, we form and develop opinions, the way we grew up, uh, the way we've uh, done things. Uh, opinions can be shaped out of life experiences, but they're not necessarily Bible-based. An opinion is something we carry. It's subject to change. A conviction is something that carries us. And it is not subject to change. And so there's that little subtle, uh, distinct difference. Convictions grow out of a conscience that is taught by God. In 1 Peter 2.19 it says, For this is thankworthy or commendable, if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. So we see here that God looks favorably upon those who live by their conscience. 
in Ephesians chapter 4, verses uh, 11 to 14, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children. I believe this describes a mature people. This describes a people with convictions. But we see that it doesn't just happen to happen because it, the, the verses I started out uh, talks about the, the teaching ministry, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. And the reason for them, the role for them is for the perfecting of the body of Christ. And so teaching plays an important role in developing convictions, and I'll have more to say that a, a little bit later. Teaching develops a mature conscience. The conscience then produces convictions, and the convictions result in stability. And we all admire Christians who are stable. We all admire those saints, young or old, who don't change. They're like a beacon that is always shining forth with a, a steady, bright light. Always there, never changing. And in a changing world, in a world that's in constant flux, we see people who don't, they don't know where they stand. They're moving from one stage to the next. But we're all attracted to a person who stands for what they believe unashamedly. And so if there is no teaching or conviction, we see what the result is in the latter part of the verse 14. Tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men, cunning craftiness whereby they lay they lie in wait to deceive, tossed to and fro, tossed up and down, unstable. One time they believe one thing, the next time another. People like this become unreliable, unstable, unsteady. One time they're up, the next time they're down. Tossed to and fro as confused as a termite on a yo-yo, if you can just picture that for a minute. We have people that call themselves Christians who are just that confused. They don't know where they stand. And so I believe the church and its leaders have the opportunity, it is their calling to teach and to train and to guide people to places of maturity and places of developing convictions, and certainly that's a challenge. And so as we think about convictions, I, my theme tonight is the ABCs to build conviction. I'm going to be looking at three basics that I believe are essential, are important in order to develop convictions. So point A, is there needs to be an adoring love for God. 
This is very basic. You've heard many sermons on love, but brothers and sisters, love for God lies right at the heart of having convictions. In 1 John 4, 7, it says, love is of God. So we see that God is the source of love. The next verse says, God is love, which simply means his character is love. His very character is love. In Pennsylvania Dutch or in the German, you'd say, Gut ist die Liebe, you'd interpret, it, interpret that word for word. We would say, God is the love. And so, God is a source of love. He's a character of love. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Romans 5.8, For God commended his love towards us, and while we were yet sinners. And so the love of God, I believe, needs to be preeminent in our hearts and minds if we're going to develop convictions in our personal lives. In Ephesians 3.19, it says, the love of Christ passes knowledge. And so the love of Christ is incomprehensible. This love, I don't believe, can be fully comprehended, can be fully understood. And certainly as the world looks at us and they see us live out the love of Christ, they certainly can't comprehend it. They can't understand how people would be like that, that they would love their enemies. And so this love is incomprehensible. This love is beyond our static opinions. It's vibrant. It's expanding, it's growing, it's blossoming, it's real, it's genuine, it can be felt. The love of God. There's so much could be said about the love of God. When we have this uh, love of Christ that passes knowledge, I believe that we can have a conviction that changes in depth and it changes in height. It affects the way we think, the way we live, the way we behave. It affects all of life. Without the love of God, conviction has a poor foundation. You don't have much to stand on unless you have the love of God in your heart. In 1 John 3, verses 1 to 3, it says, Behold what manner of love the fathers bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is, and every man that hath his hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. So notice here the effect that the love of God can have upon us. Number one, it causes the world around us to think we're strange and we're weird. Uh, verse one says, they know us not. They don't understand us. They don't know what makes us tick. We also notice that the, the love of God, if we have the love of God in our hearts, it transforms us into his image. We shall be like him in verse two. Think about it. Christ-likeness demonstrated by the love of God to the world who doesn't understand what love is. What a tremendous opportunity we have. 
It is an image that doesn't change. It is an image that portrays stability, conviction. When we have the love of God rooted in our hearts and we understand it, and it's that motion, we express it, it carries, it expresses itself in all areas of life. We also see that the love of God gives us hope in verse 3. The love of God is unshakable and is unmovable. It is those characteristics that we need in order to build conviction. And we notice also that the love of God purifies us. We notice that in, in, the, in the third verse. Every man that hath his hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. It purifies us. The bad living, the ugly habits are purged, are taken away. So the love of God produces a conviction that results in a lifestyle change. One of the first things that happens when we become a Christian, we become convicted of the fact that my life needs to change. I remember the night that I came to know the Lord at a revival meeting when I was 18 years old. And some of my buddies said, after I met with the preacher, said, let's go to the old hangout. But somehow the love of God moved me in my heart and said, no, I'm going home. And so the love of God produces change. And when we experience that love, we are motivated to allow ourselves to be led where God wants us to be. He purifies us. In John chapter 5, verse 24, in John 5, 24, it says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him hath that hath sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but he's passed from death unto life. We see several things happening here uh, when we have the love of Christ. Number one, we have everlasting life. We shall not come into condemnation. And one of the convictions that is pressed upon us when we experience our sins being released and forgiven, the chains breaking away, the chains of sin breaking away, is we feel a sense of freedom that we didn't have before. We're released from that bondage. And so the conviction of God's love and salvation results in the eradication of condemnation. Condemnation is done away with because our sins have been dealt with. I ask you tonight, young and old, do you have the conviction of that assurance? Are you absolutely convinced? Do you have the conviction that you have passed from death to life? Do you have the conviction that your salvation experience was real, was genuine, and your sins are forgiven? and you're on the road to glory. In Romans chapter 8, verses 30 and 38 and 39, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice the word persuaded. I am persuaded. 
The love of God has a strong foundation. It convinces us, not only of sin, but it convinces us of the love of God. It convinces us of the fact that we can be eternally secure. The only threat to our salvation is our own free will. There is nothing else that can take us from the love of God, but our free will can take us away from God. And it's important that we are convicted and convinced of the love of God. And if we are convicted and convinced that we've been forgiven of our sins, we have a strong foundation stone to stand upon and to begin building a life for God, a life that glorifies and honors him. In 1 John 4, verses 7 to 9. 1 John 4, verses 7 to 9. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. And he that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. When we are reborn, brothers and sisters, love is in the package. Love is the foundation stone. It's not an intellectual knowledge or an opinion, but it's a real life experience. It's explainable, and sometimes it's not explainable. Because sometimes we're so overwhelmed by the joy of the love of God and his salvation, forgiving me as a sinner, we can't find words to express it. But I pray that that has been our experience. And that when we have the opportunity, we're ready and willing to express it. A conviction rooted in the heart and lived out in the life. Our word, our, our words, our actions, our behavior. Notice again, verse 8, He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. 1 John 4, 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. The love of God res, uh, produces a conviction that we need to act accordingly to our fellow man. The love of God at work in our hearts doesn't excuse us to entertain an attitude of self-righteousness, looking down our self-righteous noses at our neighbors, but rather lays upon us a burden to love them regardless of their behavior. The love of God at work. And I believe that can become a conviction. Love is a foundation stone for building conviction. All right, the second point I'd like to look at as we think about building convictions, point B is being obedient to what we know. Obedience is a cardinal theme throughout the scripture. In 1 John 5, verses 2 and 3, By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous, or his commandments are not irksome. They don't irritate us. His commandments bring a spontaneous desire to be obedient. And that needs to be a conviction. 
There needs to be a conviction that we want to please God and be obedient to him. After all, our past life was nothing but a mess. We created a lot of problems with the way we lived and sought our own selfishness and sought to butter our own ego and seek our own pleasure. It caused a lot of problems in the church, in the family, with our neighbors at the workplace. But when we become, first of all, love the Lord our God and become obedient to his principles, we love him, we're going to want to be obedient. John 14, verse 15. John 14, 15, familiar verse here. If you love me, keep my commandments. It can't be much clearer than that. When we are reborn, obedience is also in the package. Obedience to the word of God and the teachings of Jesus. Love for God and obedience to the word cannot be separated. If we're going to try to separate it, we're going to have to deny the scriptures. We're going to have to deny what Jesus has taught us. A quote I came across by R.A. Torrey that I really liked says this, nothing goes further to help one understand the Bible than the purpose to obey it. Nothing clears the mind like obedience. Nothing darkens the mind like disobedience. To obey a truth you, to obey a truth you see prepares you to see other truths. To disobey a truth you see darkness and your mind closes to all truth. How true that is. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 104, Through thy precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. And so by being obedient, we, 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 can, we can understand what the word of God means, what he expects of us. He's very clear. And so it means we're people that are knowledgeable, people that have been taught, people that are aware, people whose conscience is at work. And so conviction, I believe, is a continuing process that grows out of our response to the truth we know. I repeat, conviction is a continuing process that grows out of our response to the truth we know. And the older we become, the more we hear the preached word, the more responsible we become. We understand more. And so we become our conviction goes through a continuing process, a continuing growing process. It, does never, it never stagnates. It just keeps moving on. And so, of course, as we think of being obedient to what we know, this brings into focus the necessity of teaching doctrine. Oh, people don't like that word these days. But the Bible is very clear about that responsibility that preachers have and parents have. First Timothy chapter four, verse 13. It says, till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. In verse 16, take heed unto thyselves that unto the doctrine, continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt save, save both thyself and them that hear thee by continuing in the doctrine. We, we, uh, we can save ourselves and we can help others to become saved. And so teaching is important. 
2 Timothy 3.16. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. Those who are called with the responsibility to preach and teach are given the charge from God to teach doctrine. And if we fail to teach doctrine, how are you going to expand people's heart and mind to a consciousness and awareness of what, what is right and wrong? Now, teaching doctrine probably involves some risk. I've said already evangelists can get away with things that the ministry at home can't. And so it gives them an opportunity to talk in a practical way about about things. But I challenge you, ministry, here tonight, when you preach doctrine, just step out on a limb and define how that might flesh out. It's a good way to get in trouble, I can guarantee you. But just define how that might flesh out. In my experience as an evangelist, I've been amazed when I preached doctrinal message and someone came afterwards and said, about a particular point I might have mentioned, a particular application said, I never thought of it. You see, in teaching doctrine, we build the foundation, but then we tickle their knowledge with an awareness of how this can be fleshed out. Yes, it's risky, but it's important. Before conviction can play a role in the church, we must teach doctrine. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, we have a word here for parents. Deuteronomy 6, verse 6 and 7, These words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and thou shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. We see here there is not only the responsibility of teaching, but there is the responsibility of a daily demonstration. Effective teaching includes a perpetual demonstration. Children need to see it fleshed out in the lives of their parents. They need to see how it works. And that message that they see has tremendous power on their life in the future. They still have free will to deal with, but if that message is demonstrated effectively, it has a means of building convictions in their heart and life they don't even realize are taking place until they're born again. All of a sudden, the light comes on. I went to a very conservative church as a young boy, the Old Order Church, became a Christian, but before that happened, I rebelled about just about everything my parents stood for, to my shame. When I started studying the scripture, all of a sudden, when I became born again, there's a new 
process of thinking took place when you're born again, all of a sudden I thought, ah, that's why they did what they did. It was an application to a Bible doctrine. So mom and dad, don't tell your children this is always the way we've done it. That is a lousy answer, I'm so bold to say. You need to give them a biblical basis for what you believe, and then it must be fleshed out successfully. And it's amazing how children can pick up what makes mom and dad tick. They know if it's real, they know if it's fake. They would never tell you it's fake because you told them to be respectful and honorable to their seniors. But deep down in their heart, they got this dislike for the sham that has been demonstrated to them. We need to be obedient to what we know in everyday life with a perpetual demonstration Without teaching, there is no knowing, there's no obedience, there's no application, there's no conviction. Samuel said, it's better to obey than sacrifice. What does that mean? Let's think about it. When obedience is practiced, there's no need for a sin offering. When obedience is practiced, there's no need for repentance because there's no guilt. And so it's important that we are obedient to the word of God. Obedient means that our eyes and our ears and our life give priority to God's word. And in that process, it's important that we allow the Holy Spirit to teach us and to lead us. My dad was a tobacco farmer. And they talked about when I became a Christian, not smoking, and it really didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. What's wrong with smoking? But one day, one Sunday morning, the preacher was talking about the temple of God and not defiling the temple of God. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit brought a conviction that wasn't there before. A new awareness a new accountability. I knew something now I didn't know before, and what was I going to do about it? It was a little bit of a struggle, but the time came that I had complete victory. Being obedient. Conviction, I believe, needs to be something that's spontaneous. It's an outgrowth of what we know. Obedience is not something that is forced, because if it is, there's not much of a blessing in that. If we don't respond to what God has taught us and we are aware of what he has taught us and we fail to respond to it, we become hypocrites and liars. In James chapter 1, verse 22, James 1, 22, But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. If we fail to be a doer of what we know, we set ourselves up for deception. 
Jeremiah says, obey my voice and I will be your God. We can have the assurance that God is with us when we are obedient. We cannot claim that Jesus is Lord until we become obedient to that which we know. Become obedient to that which the Holy Spirit has shown us. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 4, 1 John 2, 4, He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. The person who claims to be a Christian but fails to do what he clearly knows is a liar. Based on the word of God. It's not Ivan Weaver's opinion. That's the word of God. 1 John 2 verses 3 to 5. And hereby we know that we know him. And if we keep his commandments. Verse 5. But whoso keepeth his word in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby we know that we are in him. Notice that word know. When we respond to what we know, there is assurance of salvation. When we respond to that which we know, we have the beginnings of conviction starting to flesh out. Revelations 22, verse 14, familiar words here by John the Revelator. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they have the right to the tree of life and enter in through the gates into the city. What does it mean to be blessed? I believe it means to be a, it's a happy state of satisfaction that will never end. And with that awareness, conviction becomes a motivation to an end goal. It becomes a way of life. And the opinions of our peers no longer hold any value to us because we have a purpose. We have a purpose. We have an aim. We know that if we're obedient, we can someday be face to face with our Lord. All right, the third uh, point in building convictions, point C, is a commitment to faithfulness. The definition of a commitment is to act an act of, of, of vowing a promise to change. Second, uh, Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. Second Timothy 1, 12. For, for which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. What a tremendous promise. Paul was persuaded that God was going to keep that which he committed. Have you made commitments to God, the church, your life's companion? Are you persuaded? God is not obligated to help us if we've not committed. God is faithful when we commit ourselves to his way and to his will. In February 1978, I was ordained in Lancaster Conference in 1974. My wife and I had concluded that this is not a safe place to bring our children up. 
1978, we were received as members in Mid-Atlantic Fellowship. My ministry was transferred from Lancaster Conference to Mid-Atlantic. Council was taken for the congregation for me to be their pastor. The spring of that year, of 1978, when the coats started coming off, the warm weather comes off, comes along, and our coats disappear. At least I'm hot-blooded. I don't like to wear a coat when it's hot, unless it's a formal, very formal situation. To the distress of my beloved bishop, when this young minister's coat came off, he saw a short-sleeved shirt. And he left that go for a little bit, not too long, and he came and said, Brother Ivan, that's not acceptable for you to wear short-sleeved shirts in the pulpit or as a member here in this congregation. I could have said, but I don't have convictions for that. You've heard that one already, didn't you? I could have very easily said that because I didn't have convictions about that matter. But I committed myself because I felt the trouble that I had seen with the rebellion and conference was not something that I wanted to continue, that I wanted to get into. So I said that I would commit myself. An amazing thing happened. I'm not sure when it happened, but somewhere along the line, I discovered there's no way I'd go to church without a short, with a short sleeve shirt on. Somehow or the other, this God took this commitment I made and made it a conviction. So what do you do with people who say that I don't have a conviction? I've heard those comments, and I have concluded that those statements are not very important. I would usually say, okay, well, I understand that. That's not the question. The question is, are you willing to submit? And brothers and sisters, I contend that submission is more important than conviction. Conviction's important, but submission is very important. The willingness to submit and to commit ourselves can lead into the development. You see, submission is at the zenith of Christ-likeness. Uh, Brother Keith this morning talked about the spirit of Jesus. And I had to think about it. All the scripture has to say about the submission of our Lord. And I do believe it is a spirit and attitude that we need to develop. The Roman writer says, be not conformed to this world. Have we committed ourselves to not patterning ourselves after the fads and the customs of the world? Oh yes, sometimes the Lord leads us above and beyond what the discipline requires. That happens. Are you going to discourage a person like that? Are you going to tell a person like that, ah, just cool it a little bit because we can't have this going through the congregation. Come on, brothers and sisters. We must allow the Spirit of God to work in our lives 
And as he raises up people within our congregation that have stronger convictions than we do, we ought to be praising the Lord. Because it is important that those individuals are obedient to what they know. You, one of the things I've noticed is that peer pressure prevents obedience. We know what we should do, but we don't do it because nobody else in the youth group does. Or none of the other adults think it's very important. And so we just stagnate. We need to allow the Spirit of God to lead us to the point of commitment. The Holy Spirit revealing truth to us doesn't stop with the rules and discipline. Where would we be if, if, if the Holy Spirit's work would stop at our rules and discipline? They're merely a guideline to help us along the way. We need to allow God to work and to lead us. If we don't keep our commitments up to date to what we know, we are in danger of losing the love of God. In 1 John 2.15, again a familiar verse, it says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Very, very clear. James chapter 4, same thing. James 4.4. 4. Ye adulterers and adulterers, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. In Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodly, ungodliness and worldly lusts, we shall live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. The grace of God is our mentor. The grace of God teaches us what we should do. The grace of God also teaches us what we should not do. And so we need to allow the grace of God to work in our lives and be ready and willing to commit ourselves to that which we understand and has been revealed to us. If you're a Christian, the culture you're part of is not your mentor. If you're a member of the Mennonite Church, you have vowed to faithfully submit to Christ and his word. A commitment, not only to the discipline, but a commitment to Christ and his word. It's so important that we're obedient to that which we know and that that is motivated by the love of God. The God of this world is presently sucking out the lifeblood of our commitment to Christ and the church. We need to wake up, brothers and sisters, or we're going to find ourselves on the casualty list of apostasy. When we lose our commitment to the local church, we lose our commitment to the Lord of the church. Why is that true? Because in the Bible, you cannot separate the Lordship of Jesus Christ from the body of Christ. In conclusion, the equation for building conviction is we start with an abiding love for God. Plus, 
being obedient to what we know, plus a commitment to faithfulness. And that equals the ABCs of biblical conviction, the basics for conviction. If you remove any one of these ingredients, you have a religion that is very shallow and in all probability won't endure. A little bit like the description in Ephesians 4, tossed to and fro. And in closing, I'd like to read to you a commitment by an unknown author. He says this, I am part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of his. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm finished and done with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed visions, mundane talking, cheap living, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by faith, lean on his presence, walk by patience, lift by prayer, and labor by power. My face is set, my gate, gate is fast, my goal is heaven, my road is narrow, my way rough, my companions few, my guide reliable, my mission clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of the adversary, negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder the pool of, unpopula of popularity or meander into the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up or let up until I've stayed up, stored up, prayed up and preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must go till he comes, give till I drop, preach till I know, and work till he stops me. And when he comes for his own, he will have no problem recognizing me. My banner is clear. Is that what your convictions are like? Thank you for listening.